The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, by the way. My name is Paul, and I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage, and we are so glad that you have joined us this morning as we are, we are in a study. We are, we are eight weeks into a study through the book of Daniel. Today we're going to be in Daniel chapter 4. I encourage you to open up to Daniel chapter 4. Today we're going to be uh, starting in verse 19. We're going to study through, the, through verse 33 today. And as we turn to Daniel chapter 4, this is known as one of the great climaxes of the book of Daniel. This chapter is kind of a, it's an anchor chapter for the overall message of the book of Daniel. This message about kingdoms and the king of God, the kingdom of God and, and his superior kingdom, which dominion endures for all of eternity, this kingdom of kingdoms. And, and we see that language in, in chapter 4 as Nebuchadnezzar. The king of the most dominant empire on the planet uh, is sort of sharing testimony as to what the Most High God has done in his life. Looking forward to sharing with you what God has revealed to me as I've studied this passage this week. But before we jump in, would you join me in a word of prayer? Oh, Father, we, we are grateful for the opportunity you've given us this morning as the family of God uh, as, as saints, but also as seekers who are searching out truth. You've given us an opportunity this morning to gather in this place and, God, to open up your word and to, to, to hear from you through your word preached, God. I pray that you would, God, you would give us reverence in our hearts as we approach you and as we approach this word this morning. You are the Most High God. And God, as we study these words, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us understanding. God, I pray that you would bring where appropriate conviction that we could confess and repent and walk in obedience to your will for our lives. We invite you to meet us in this place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. No doubt you've heard the saying, pride comes before the? We've all heard it. It comes from that proverb, Proverbs 16, 18. The ESV translation puts it this way. Pride goes before destruction and the haughty and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's a lesson that's never fun to learn, right? When I was in high school, I went to this little teeny high school in Montana. As I've told many of you, I was one of 14 kids in my public school graduating class. And I competed in sports. And my kids, I, I was a pretty good athlete in high school. And my kids remind me all the time, yeah, dad, because you competed against three people. It's not that hard to be a good athlete. <laughs> in high school. But I was a pretty good track and field athlete in high school. And, and uh, you know, I, I wasn't as good as I thought I was, but I was pretty good for, for the 90s. Uh, and uh, there was this one track and field meet every year in Missoula. It was this regional invitational where schools, bigger schools were there. And it was a two-day meet. And I remember going to the first day of the meet, ran in the 100-meter trials, and I had the fastest qualifying time for the finals. I'm like, yes, I'm going to win this meet, this big meet. And I had the fastest qualifying time by like two-tenths of a second. So I'm like, I think I'm going to be the champion of this large meet with, you know, in Montana, A schools and double A schools. We were class C. And, and I was excited. So I remember that night in my bed thinking, okay, I got to, like, this is my moment. I got to, like, I got to put my stamp on this moment. I got to say something just really cool. Like, a, I don't know, maybe it's kind of like a catchphrase or something for how good I am and stuff. And uh, so I, honestly, this is no lie. I came up with this phrase. This is so embarrassing. I decided I was going to tell the guy who was the second fastest time. He was in lane five. I was in lane four. I was going to tell him right before the race, hey, buddy, could you, uh, could you just tell me what my, what my butt looks like when I cross the finish line? See, <laughs> I would be ahead of him when we cross the finish line. He'd be looking at my rear end. I don't think he got it. I think he thought I was hitting on him. I don't think he really understood... <laughs> I wanted to be cool and confident, not cocky. I failed at all three. And so I get in the blocks that day. You know, this is going to be my crowning moment. You know how the story ends. You know, I got beat. And the guy to whom I asked him uh, what my butt looked like when I crossed, I was watching his butt when he crossed the finish line in front of me. So embarrassing. Like, I'm just so embarrassed that I did that. I got humbled. Yeah, pride comes before the fall. Pride is an issue. Pride is an issue for us. I read an article this week written by Christina Fox and, uh, on the Ligonier's website, and she explores the question, what is pride? And boy, I appreciate some of the work she did. She asked the question, what do you think of when you hear the word pride? I mean, in our culture, it means many things, but it's often seen as a good thing. Now, even if we, if we though not for the, a longer discussion today, but clearly we know that the word pride has been used to, to celebrate the LGBTQ movement. And so when we hear the word pride, there's part of us that goes there. But just in general, how do we think about the word pride? We, 
We think of that word and we see it generally as a society, as a good thing. Someone might say, take pride in your work or have school pride or something of the like. The values of our culture would tell you and would tell me that we are to be true to ourselves, we're to be true to who we are. This kind of self-pride in our culture is affirmed and it's encouraged. The dictionary describes pride in, in one of two ways. It can either be a reasonable amount of self-esteem or an exaggerated self-esteem. But I think all of us would agree, all of us would agree that there is such a thing as too much pride. And I think we all know it when we see it. The Bible's pretty clear on pride. I read you the, the well-known Proverbs 16, 18 text. But what about Proverbs 8? The, the book of Proverbs positions itself as wisdom, and wisdom is personified as a woman. And she's calling out to any who will heed her call. And in Proverbs 8, verse 13, she cries out, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, God says. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is speaking and he's explaining that it's not what's outside of a person's body that defiles them, but it's what's inside of a person's body that defiles them. It's like what's in the heart. And then he goes on to describe that. He says in, in Mark 7 verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. One author describes pride as one of the foremost ways of describing sin. If you go back all the way to the original sin in Genesis chapter 3, you can make a strong argument that it was pride that was at the center of Adam and Eve wanting to be elevated above God. I read this week that from that moment in the Garden of Eden, from that moment on, we all center our lives around ourselves. We make God's wisdom small in our eyes and we exalt ourselves above God and above others. It's all pride is arrogance. Pride thinks it knows better and pride thinks it is better. Pride sets itself in first place above others. It, it bows to no one but itself. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said this about pride. He said, pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Pastor Jeremy this week said, without humility, we can't even become Christians. Pride is the opposite of humility, and we see this all throughout the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, when pride comes... Then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 18, verse 12. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. One author wrote, The proud live as though they are kings of their own kingdom, whereas the humble recognize they are creatures of the king of kings. Pride is a problem for every person. And that problem manifests in different ways for different people. For there's some, certainly, and I think I was in this camp, and I probably still struggle with this camp, and I probably will always struggle with this camp. There, there's, a, there's a way in which pride manifests in a, in a puffed-up, self-exalting, easy-to-see way. That's always been my struggle. Hence, telling this young man to tell me how my behind looks when I cross the finish line. But sometimes pride is subdued. It's hidden in different ways. And it's really easy to convince ourselves that we're not prideful. I heard someone say this week that there's a great test to, 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 to reveal the, the level of pride that we may have within. I thought this was a good test. He said, he said, think of that one area of your life where you are absolutely killing it. What's that one or two areas of your life where if you like look at your whole life, you're like, you know what? I may struggle with this. I may struggle with that. I may struggle with this. But this is just like an area where I just feel like God's given me gifts in this area. He's given me wisdom in this area. I've kind of got this nailed. What's that one area in your life? Is it parenting? Is it doctrine? Is it a marriage or maybe your vocation or maybe it's athletics or finances or intelligence or maybe your generosity? Whatever that area is, how do you respond when you're criticized about that area? And that often reveals where our pride really lies. What would it mean for you and for me to be truly humble? I think that's the question this text, text kind of asks us as we look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar. What would it mean for you and for me to be humble? 
Chapter four, as we started last week, is the personal testimony, is a way of putting it, it's a personal testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian empire, which was this empire that was about 500, 600 BC, the most powerful empire on the planet. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful king on the planet. And he's writing in this story, we learned last week, he's, he wants the world to know the signs and the wonders that the most high God had done for him. He, he's telling the story of how he had met God. And, and we're in the middle of that story today as we pick up in verse 19. I read last week from one commentator, they said that, and it was an interesting way to think about it, that, that the fourth chapter of Daniel is the only chapter in Scripture comprised under the authority of a pagan. He's a non-Jew, and he wrote this chapter. But ultimately, God is the, hist, uh, is the author of all Scripture, so ultimately God wrote this chapter for us. This passage, chapter 4, the story of the Israelites in exile in Babylon, it takes place in, in, in Babylon. Now, we've got to remember that it was Babylon centuries earlier was the same place, the plain of Shinar, where the Tower of Babel was constructed in Genesis 11. You probably remember that story. And the, the Tower of Babel was this story of how all the people of the world came together to build a tower that reached to heaven so that they could make a name for themselves in this giant act of self-promotion. Though, though Babylon is not the birthplace of pride, I would say the Garden of Eden is that, it was certainly elevated to new heights in the same place from which King Nebuchadnezzar is writing today. So centuries later, the people of God find themselves exiled into this country, into Babylon, as they're serving under a king who struggles with some self-obsessed pride. Let's pick up chapter 4. Verse 19, if you were here last week, Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, I'm going to tell you the story of how I met the Most High God. I had this terrible dream that was terrifying to me, and I brought Daniel in to interpret this dream for me. I said last week that we see the pathway to God Most High. The pathway for Nebuchadnezzar to encounter the Most High God began when God gave him a troubling dream that caused him to reach out to Daniel. And in our passage today, Daniel, who's Babylonian name is Belteshazzar, is standing before the king, and he's going to offer interpretation. Here we go. That's where we pick up. Verse 19, chapter 4. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, and he said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached into heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. Verse 22, this tree, it is you, O king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher in his dream, a holy one, coming down from heaven saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and its roots for its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven. And let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. Here's what the dream means, in other words. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon the Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Let's pause there. We'll go back to the verse 29 or verse 28 a little bit later in the service today. 
So this is Daniel. He's providing interpretation to the king about what this bizarre dream meant that involved trees and chopping down and roots and grass and dew and all of this. And what's the reason for all of this? Why is all of this happening? God has given revelation of it to Daniel through the dream he gave the king. Why? Well, we see in this second part of verse 25. Look at the very second part of verse 25. Why is all this happening? Why this humiliation to the king? Well, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. He is doing this so that Nebuchadnezzar will recognize who the true king is. That's why it's all happening to Nebuchadnezzar. He is humbling the proud. There's purpose behind the king's problems. Here's the first thing I'd encourage you to write down. I got two points in today's sermon. Simply this. Number one, as we tell the story of the Most High God humbling the proud, we see Daniel speaking hard truths in love. We see Daniel standing here before Nebuchadnezzar and he's speaking hard truths in love. Now, Daniel clearly had a voice with the king. If you go back to the previous text we studied last week on three separate occasions, the king said something to the effect of Daniel, you have the spirit of the holy gods in you. So Daniel knew, God knew there was something, or Nebuchadnezzar knew there was something special about Daniel. And so Daniel had a voice with the king. To what extent, we don't know, but it seems between the two of them, there was a real rapport. We see that even in the opening, opening verse that we started with today, verse 19. As it opens up, we see the king concerned about how Daniel's feeling and Daniel concerned about how the king's feeling. Look at the first part of verse 19. Daniel, it says, is dismayed and alarmed. Why is Daniel dismayed and alarmed. I mean, it reminds me of when the king first heard the dream back in verse 5 that said the king was afraid and alarmed. Now Daniel, having heard the, the, the dream from the king, he's dismayed and alarmed. And as Daniel heard the king tell this dream, as God gives him understanding of what the dream means, he knew that there were serious problems pending for this, this king. As he considered the dream's interpretation, he was dismayed. His thoughts alarmed him. He knew that this king was facing a painful reality and he had to tell the king the interpretation of the dream. I think that's why he was dismayed and alarmed. He might be dismayed and alarmed because he didn't want to see the king suffer. That's one option. I think he's also dismayed and alarmed because here he is standing before the most powerful man on the planet and he has to speak a hard truth into this king's life which does not bode well for the king. How would you feel? standing before the most powerful man, knowing you had some really bad news to share with him. Wouldn't your knees be knocking a little bit? Nebi was, in fact, the most powerful man. He sat atop the most powerful kingdom, known to man. No doubt being summoned to come speak to the king was an affair. I try to imagine, I try to kind of, when I read scripture sometimes, I try to like imaginatively insert myself into the pages of scripture and try to see it from the eyes of the people I'm reading about. I imagine the journey Daniel took that day through the streets of, of Babylon to the king's palace. And Babylon was a famous, famous city. It was a glorious city. It was, a, it was a, an, incredibly, an incredibly beautiful city. I read this week that Babylon was one of the preeminent cities of history especially during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, it was undoubtedly the most magnificent and probably the largest city on earth. I have a couple of pictures I'm going to show up on the screen. These are just artists' renderings of what Babylon, ancient Babylon, looked like. The city was a massive city. It was the size of modern-day Chicago. It encompassed 200, 200, 200 square miles were inside the, the, the city gates. It was surrounded by a, a series of three concentric walls, at least 40 feet tall, at least 20 feet wide. They say that the walls of Babylon were so big that you could do chariot races on top of the walls. It was surrounded by a moat, bordered the Euphrates River. There were three major palaces for Nebuchadnezzar dotted throughout the city. These, these palaces were, were decorated in uh, gleaming blue and yellow tiles. There were these shrines to, to these false gods of Babylon all over the city. The most famous was called Isagil. It was a, it was a shrine to the Babylonian god uh, Marduk, which was their most significant deity, a false god, but in their mind, a deity. And there was a shrine in the city of Babylon that stretched 280 feet into the sky. We're talking 2,700 years ago. There was a 26, 27-story skyscraper in this ancient city. Can you imagine what that looked like, the spectacle that was for the people that came to this city? It reflected the power and the prosperity of this king. And in the midst of all of it was this, the seven wonders of the ancient world, these, these famous hanging gardens, 
They were a colossal maze of terraced trees and shrubs and flowers made to look like mountains because the king's wife was from a mountainous region and he wanted her to see mountains in the plains of Babylon. I read this week that in the midst of all the opulence, Daniel entered the king's palace. One author speculates what that was like. He says, once inside, court officials would have led him through the labyrinth of kingly corridors until he arrived at last in the throne room. There, Nebuchadnezzar waited for him in resplendent glory. And so here's Daniel, once before the king, faced with the challenge of speaking God's truth to the king. And I want you to notice three things about the way Daniel communicates to the king. Here's the first thing. He speaks words of compassion. Daniel begins his address of the king by speaking words of compassion. It's clear that Daniel and the king have uh, a rapport or a level of compassion for, for one another. I mean, Daniel's dismayed and alarmed. Maybe that's part of it. But ultimately, we see the king. As he, he sees that Daniel's laboring, the king sees that Daniel's struggling. Look what he says in the middle of, the, of verse 19. He says, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or, or the interpretation alarm you. It's like he says, oh, 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 buddy, it's okay. It's okay. I see that you're scared. I see that you're alarmed. I see that you're dismayed. Don't, don't be dismayed, the king says. And then the way, the way that Daniel answers the king, he says, my Lord, I don't want this to be true of you. I want what, what this dream means. May it be true of your enemies. I hate that this is true for you. I don't want this to be true for you. And so there's, a, on some level, a concern for Daniel by the king. And on some level, there's a concern for the king by Daniel. And I think it's really important for us to take note of the fact that, that Daniel is not in any way reveling in the king's bad fortune or the king's bad news. He genuinely is grieving for the king at the prospect of the pending problem facing the king. Boy, I just think of the toxicity in our political climate today. I think of my own heart, if I'm honest with you. When I watch the evening news and I see the political people who I don't align with suffering or being caught or being exposed, I revel in that. Nebuchadnezzar was no friend of the Israelite people. Let's not romanticize this. It was his kingdom, and in part him as king, who invaded and overthrew Daniel's homeland, Judah and Jerusalem. It was the Babylonians that, that sacked the temple, stole all of the instruments of worship out of the temple. It was the Babylonians that destroyed the temple. It was the Babylonians that tore children from their, their families. Daniel, no doubt, was torn from his family, forced to live in exile hundreds of miles away from home. Families torn apart, city destroyed, people no doubt killed, captured into captivity. Utter ruin brought to the people of God. Nebi was not a friend of Israel. And for all intents and purposes, he was an enemy of Daniel. Daniel was a captive. And yet we see him here with compassion. Man, we can learn from this. Compassion for this man in authority over him. I, I'm, I'm mindful of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He, he told us that we are to, he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I think we see that embodied here in Daniel. Ultimately, we see it embodied in Jesus Christ. Do you remember Jesus, Luke 19? Right before the triumphal entry, he's looking over the city of Jerusalem. He's seeing all these people that will be shouting, crucify him. It's the city and its leaders who will nail him to a cross in seven days, or five days. And as Jesus is looking over the city, Luke records it this way for us, Luke 19, verse 41 and 42. When Jesus drew near and he saw Jerusalem, he wept over it. He said, oh, would it be that you, Jerusalem, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace? He grieved over this city that would nail him to a cross. We see this picture of compassionate hearts. With humility, Daniel begins his address to the king with compassion. And then he confronts him. It's the second thing I want you to notice. We see words of confrontation. We see words of confrontation. Daniel spoke the hard truth into Nebuchadnezzar's life. He, he didn't soften the edges of what he had to say in the name of compassion. He didn't dumb down his message to make it more palpable for the king. He unequivocally spoke the truth about the dream into Nebuchadnezzar's life, refusing to maneuver for self-protection. He spoke a hard truth. He confronted the king with the truth that God had given him. 
One author puts it this way. He said, fear is often the greatest enemy of faithful witnesses for it makes us silent. I think about that often when I think about the opportunities in my life God has given me to speak truth into people's lives, especially those I know. We asked this question of our our youth group on, on Wednesday night. Like, what's the difficulty about sharing the truth, about talking about Jesus, about sharing the gospel with, with the people you know in your life and the people you don't know in your life. We explored that. And so I know that there's great fear that grips our hearts when we think about sharing the message of Jesus with family members or with unbelieving friends or with coworkers or even people in authority over us. That author continues to say, Daniel stays and speaks and in so doing, as he stands before the king, speaking truth, a confrontational truth, he provides a model for us as followers of Christ who must make the hard truths of God's kingdom known to those who seek to rule this world, whether or not that rule is over an empire or simply over their own heart. And so then we got this, this unpacking of what this dream means. We looked a little bit last week into the, 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 the bizarre nature and the complexities of this vision that, that Daniel or that Nebuchadnezzar had. But let's, let's think for just a few moments about what, what's happening in verses 20 through 26. We see uh, Daniel retelling the dream to the king. Here's what he dreamed in verses 20 and 21. When he gets to 22 here, there's those, those famous five words, it is you, O king. At the beginning of verse 22, like this whole dream is about you, king. And he explains that his kingdom has become huge and it's fruitful and it's abundant and the tree reaches to the, to the, to the heavens and, and all, of, all of the people find refuge and protection and sustenance under, the, under the, the leaves and the branches of the tree for the king's greatness and the king's dominion was known to all. And then in verse 23, he begins to interpret the message of this watcher, this holy one of God that spoke a truth into Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And what's the watcher tell him? The watcher says, chop down the tree and utterly destroy it. He tells Nebuchadnezzar that there's going to be just a stump with some roots with a band of iron and bronze around the stump. There's going to be seven periods of time where he's going to live as a beast in the field, going to be soaked by the dew from heaven and the grass. And Daniel says, king, this is you. You're, you're going to lose your mind. You're going, to, you're going to descend into utter madness. You're going to be humiliated in the most profound ways, and it's going to last a season of seven, seven periods of time. The fact that there's roots in the tree that remain, that, that's a hopeful image that it's not all over for the king. There's, there's, there's hope that the king may again grow into something beautiful and strong after seven periods of time. And what are the seven periods of time? No one knows. No one agrees on that. I tend to think it's probably seven years because we read later on in next, at the end of our text today, verse 33, that when he was in that seven-year period or that seven periods of time, the king's hair grew like eagle's feathers and his fingernails became as claws, which, which would, it would take years for that to take place. But for a long period of painful reality, this king is going to lose his mind. He's going to think he's a beast. He's going to live in the, the, the wet grass. He's going to eat the grass as if he is a beast. And that seven is, is a number of completion. We can know that there was a sense of completion or fullness to what was about to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. And we read in verses 24, 25, and 26 that the whole thing, this whole thing is happening to Nebuchadnezzar as a decree from God himself. The proud and powerful king is going to be humbled by God. God is saying through the dream and through Daniel, he says, you're going to be driven from human society. You're going to live in fields like a wild animal. And so Daniel just speaks this hard truth. He holds nothing back. Remember, he was dismayed and alarmed when this whole thing began. He was on shaky legs, but he didn't allow that to give him an excuse to not speak a hard truth. He, he didn't want this truth to be true of the king. He wanted it to be true of somebody else, but he spoke it anyways. And it was just the previous chapter where Nebuchadnezzar tried to burn his three best friends for not bowing down to the idol that he made. With the threat of death, he spoke this truth. He spoke words of confrontation. And lastly, we see in verse 27, he, wrote, he spoke words of counsel. He, he spoke words of comfort, words of confrontation, and words of counsel. Sort of a, a, a conclusion to his interpretation, it seems as if Daniel is offering his own thoughtful insights, his own counsel to the king in light of what the king just found out about his future. He says to him in verse 27, let my counsel, king, be acceptable to you. I just think of the courage of Daniel to stand there. 
I mean, not only to stand there and just be compassionate towards the king, not only to stand there and offer interpretation to speak this confrontational truth into the king's life, but then to stand in front of the king, the most powerful man ever, and to offer his own counsel before this king? I mean, after Daniel paints the picture of the consequence of the king's pride, he offers this word of counsel or even correction, if you will. He looks that king in the eyes and he says, King, if I can just say one thing to you here, let's listen, king. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Do what's right, king. Break from your wicked past. Be merciful to the poor. Stop oppressing people. And and if you do that, perhaps, maybe perhaps, the Most High God will continue to allow you to prosper. In other words, he says to the king, king, there's another way. I know right now you've got all the the prosperity, all the opulence, all the the creature comforts of life, but I'm telling you there's another way because it's not going to continue for you in this way. Confess, king. Repent. Come to terms with the fact that there is a king who is much greater than you. Come to terms with the fact you did not earn this position that you have. You were given it by the king of heaven. Walk in humility. Stop parading in pride. And we've got to remind ourselves that this was the whole reason God sent his people into Babylon. Week one of this sermon series, we looked at the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 25 and 27 spoke about why he was sending the people of Israel into exile. We normally associate exile with the punishment of God, but in this case, it was God's faithful who were sent under God's favor to do God's work in Babylon. And we see that happening right here. Daniel in front of the king, he's got a word for the world as he's speaking God's word to this pagan king. Babylon was a place where God's people were meant to be, where productive work was meant to happen for the glory of God. And so we see Daniel doing that. We see that very thing happening, the fulfillment of, the fulfillment of, of Jeremiah's prophecy. I think about this for you and for me today. What what if we think about our mission as the Church of Christ? Or next week we're going to have Mission Sunday. What it means for us to live on mission for Jesus, to be obedient to the Great Commission, to the ends of the earth, both across the street and across the ocean. What if we think about our mission or our ministry to the world through this three-pronged approach, compassion and confrontation and counsel? What if we spoke words of compassion today as the church? I mean, compassion flows from a tender heart. It flows out of a real concern for those facing the consequences of their own sin. Our heart breaks for what breaks God's heart. And if our message is true, I mean, if, if we have the, the message that gives life, if we have the hope of the nations, if the gospel message is, is the one message that saves, the, saves our, our family and our friends and our neighbors and saves the people of planet Earth, If people are going to die apart from God without the gospel message, this message that God has given us, then the most compassionate thing we can do is to share this message. To leverage our relationships. Because we love people. I mean, we are are so much more likely to, to, to brag on the latest show we're watching on Netflix, the latest TV series. We'll tell anybody about the latest series we're watching. I know I do. Oh, have you checked out this show? Oh, have you checked out that show? Oh, did you see this movie? Oh, did you see how the Beavers played this weekend? See how the Ducks are doing? We love, but we've got such a more powerful and important message that we just be like, we just just don't share it. But if our hearts were, were softened with compassion and we saw the world the way God sees the world, we see people dying apart from the gospel, do you think maybe there'd be a little bit more impetus in the heart of the church to say, yeah, I... This is, there's a fire that God has put in me that I can't contain. I got to share this with people. I think about that. Having compassion for those caught up in sin can sometimes be hard. Because sometimes when people are caught up in sin, they wound us, they hurt us, they're messy, it's difficult. David Helm puts it this way in his book. He says, today, much witnessing seems devoid of a tender heart toward unbelievers. He says, too often people speak up for Christ in ways that betray judgmental hearts, ones very unlike the hearts we see on display in Daniel 4. Recapturing the heart for the world of God's prophets and apostles is essential for all public and private witness. 
We need to be able to say like the Apostle Paul in, in Romans 10:1 when he said, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire, my, my absolute prayer for you, my fellow Jews, is that you may be saved, moved with compassionate hearts for the unbelieving in our midst. And also gotta, we also got I just got to say this. We also got to recognize here that Daniel's not just talking to a buddy. He's not just a coworker. He's speaking this truth to power, to ultimate power. And he's doing it with compassion. He's not mean-spirited here. He's not reveling in the, 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 the pending pain for this king. He's not. In fact, he says, I don't want this to be true of my king. He's speaking truth to the authority that God has placed over him, and he's showing appropriate submission to that authority. I think of Romans 13 and all that language. I think of the political hatred in our culture today. I think of what, how my own heart betrays me. I think of the things I say of politicians I abhor in my personal life, and it's like, I can't talk like that. And I'm just going to say, this might, you might hate me for saying this. I, do I say this or don't I? I don't think it is pleasing to God when Christians have, let's go Brandon, bumper stickers or t-shirts. You know what that phrase means. I think that is so abhorrent. We can disagree with a politician, and believe me, I have my time, we have our times. But to endorse an expletive, I just think it betrays everything that we're called to be. So if you feel, feel convicted, if you're mad at me, you want to punch me, it's the Holy Spirit. Punch the Holy Spirit. I, I just think, and again, I, I'm looking at my own life, I'm looking in the mirror, I know how I speak to the television when I see things unfolding that drive me insane about those in power. And I just don't want to be hateful. I don't want my heart to be taken over by that. Oh God, by your spirit, give us compassionate hearts to genuinely love and care for those apart from you. What if we spoke words of confrontation today? In love, in humility, hard truths spoken. Not weaponized, but also not softened, regardless of the consequences. This, this, Daniel stood before the king full well knowing he could have been thrown in the fire. Or he could have been killed like the king threatened in chapter 2. If God has called you to be his word in another person's life, boy, we can't. I think sometimes we think about confrontational as being synonymous with mean or, or angry or arrogant. I, confrontational, speaking the truth in love is just speaking the truth. Honest, direct, in love, but speaking the truth, not shirking the truth. And so what if, what if just, what if God has is, is put you, what if God, is, in, his, in, his, in his orchestrating the events of your life and the people around you, what if you are the person through whom he wants to speak a truth into your friend's life or to your spouse's life or to your son's life or to your daughter's life or to your neighbor's life or to your coworker's life or to your teammate's life? What if you're the one God has positioned to be his mouthpiece to those people? And if we choose not to speak those truths, what are we doing? If we're too embarrassed or ashamed or afraid or don't want to disrupt the relationship or whatever it may be, what if, I just think, I'm, again, I, I just look at Daniel here and he, he knew that there was going to be likely some serious consequence for him speaking this truth and he just did. And then what if we spoke words of counsel? What if we leveraged our relationship and our, the earned trust that we have with people um, to speak words of, of counsel? I, I pointed out last week that Daniel served Nebuchadnezzar for 42 years. And so if you break that down, that's 15,340 days that Daniel served King Nebuchadnezzar before he died. Uh, two of those days are recorded for us in Daniel, chapter 2 and chapter 4. We see two days in which Daniel interpreted dreams and had interaction directly with the king. Maybe three if you say the night before, but three, a handful of days. So that means that, that 15,338 or 37 days of Daniel's job serving the king was lived out in, in mundane, ordinary, everyday life. And I absolutely believe that what gave Daniel the, the, the relational equity to speak counsel into the king's life was that 15,338 days of him being a man of integrity, doing his job with excellence, being a, a reflection of God, being uh, the aroma of God, being a parable of the Most High God to this king. Those many days of serving the king gave him uh, relational equity through which to speak this truth. As we look at Daniel, the text also gives us no indication of how Nebuchadnezzar received his words. They just don't, we don't know. Maybe Daniel got kicked out of the king's presence in anger. Maybe 
the king kindly invited Daniel to leave. Maybe the king was broken for a moment and, and, and wept in front of Daniel. Maybe he thought, we, don't, we ultimately don't know. The testimony of the king here doesn't elaborate. And since God is the ultimate author of scripture, God doesn't think we need to know how the king responded here to the hard words, the, the speaking of truth that Daniel did in his life. And I think that's kind of the point. When I think about applying it to our lives, we're called to speak the truth in love and we're called to trust God with the results. Daniel didn't, he didn't hinge his, his words to the results he wanted to see. He just spoke the words and trusted that God would use the words. If you think about it, it took eight years for the words that Daniel spoke in this moment. The seeds that he sowed in the heart of Daniel, of Nebuchadnezzar, it took eight years for those seeds to, to, to yield any fruit. So Daniel was obedient to say what God called him to say. He didn't give himself an excuse to opt out or shrink away. He boldly spoke God's truth into the man's life. The most powerful man on the planet. And he gave us an example. You and I are exiles here today. We've looked at that in 1 Peter. Peter calls us exiles, foreigners, sojourners, whatever language you want to use. We're exiles here. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Our kingdom is not of this earth. We are living here as exiles in modern-day Babylon. We are called to, to be exiles here. We're called, we have a word for the world, just like Daniel had a word for the world. We have a word that the world needs to hear. God has given us, just like Daniel had a word for the king, we have a word for the world. It's, it's analogous. And as an exile today, the question you and I have to ask ourselves, and the question I've been wrestling with since I've been studying this text is, are, are you willing to speak to others about Christ? even those in power over you? Are you willing to, to, to courageously, boldly, in humility, speak those words and trust the results to God? Again, you may be the closest thing to Jesus in someone's life. You know, they've given up on the church, they've given up on God, they're dealing with personal wounds. Whatever the issue may be, they know that you are a follower of Jesus. They know you attend church. They know you're a spiritual person. They know you're a Christian. You may be the closest thing to Jesus in someone's life, and God may have put you in life. I know, not may, I know that today, for those of us that sit here, you are, God has positioned you to be his mouthpiece in people's lives. You're the one through whom they're going to hear the truth. Oh, God, just give us... Give us humility to do this, God. Give us compassion and conviction and the, the tools we're going to need. See, the Most High God humbles the proud, and he gives his kingdom to the humble. That's the crazy thing about it. He humbles the proud, but that's not where the story ends. The kingdom belongs to the humble. So, we see that he speaks hard truths in love really quick. Let's look uh, at how, how Daniel, or how Nebuchadnezzar responds. Pick up in verse 28. All this, came to, uh, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, It is not this, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Notice all the mys and the eyes in verse 30. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among the men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall not be, rather, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to them, those whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and he ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So for one year, it held off. Maybe he was superficially obedient for a year, so God waited, or maybe God was just gracious, but after 12 months, as he makes this insanely arrogant comment from the, pal the roof of his palace, he, he, he suffers under the full weight of God's judgment. Here's the last thing I want you to write down. Uh, we see the king suffering hard trials in his pride. We see the, the king suffering hard trials in pride. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my majesty. He made it all about himself. And so this is the humiliation of the king, and it's God's doing. Nebi was given his position by God 
And he needs to recognize that, and he hasn't. Two times, in verse 25 and in verse 32, he's told, you're gonna be humiliated, king, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. He acknowledges God as the Most High King, and until he acknowledges God as the Most High King, he's gonna be driven into madness. He's got this condition that he thinks he's a beast or an animal. That's actually a mental disorder that he had. But as we see, pride comes before the fall. For a once proud Nebuchadnezzar, the fall was mighty, wasn't it? Can you imagine? Most powerful man on the planet. A wild man with hair like eagle's feathers and claws, thinking he's an animal eating grass and being soaked by the dew and the rain. That's just, he was out of his mind. I read this week that when God humbles the proud, it's an act of his grace. When God humbles the proud, it's an act of his grace. This is why pride comes with disgrace and dishonor. God may allow us for a while to live in our own fantasies of self-delusion. He, he may allow us to live in this false reality, letting us believe for a few moments that we are kings of our own universe, but eventually the truth is made known. Eventually God brings uh, the hammer down and he pulls back the veil and allows us to see the truth of how things are. We, we come face to face with the fact that we're actually, absolutely not in control. We're not on the throne. And God in his grace, he, he, he peels out of our hands the things we so desperately cling to and we come to an end of ourselves and he in grace destroys the little kingdoms we tend to build and, and we're left with nothing. Pride comes before the fall, but when God humbles the proud, it's an act of grace as we'll see in the coming week. In that moment of emptiness, we have the opportunity to repent and to yield to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In so doing, we, we, we cast down our crown at the feet of Jesus. We bow down before our King and we submit to his Lordship. So, you know, I looked at this text and there's really kind of two things. There's a second part of the King being humbled in this first part of, of Daniel speaking. So we got Daniel speaking hard truths in love and we got the King suffering hard trials and pride. Ultimately, the, the text is about the Most High God humbling the proud in his grace, but giving the kingdom to the humble. And as I was studying this passage this last week with Dr. Ken Townsend in my office, or in, in, our, in, our, in the hub, in the offices, we were kind of looking at, so, so there's like two different things happening here. One thing in Daniel's life and one thing in the king's life. What's going on here? And it was Dr. Townsend that kind of helped me see that it's, it's God revealing himself to both men. God's revealing himself to both men. Daniel was obedient to what God had revealed to him, and the king wasn't. Daniel was receiving a message from God through the, the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel recognized, this is God speaking to me. I have a job to do. I'm going to do it. And he did it. He responded in obedience to what God asked him to do. But then as the Nebuchadnezzar is receiving word from God through a dream and the mouth of God's prophet, he doesn't want to hear it. He fakes it maybe for 12 months, but ultimately he doesn't hear it. We see one responding in obedience, one responding in disobedience to the instruction of God. One position to speak truth, one positioned to hear truth. One spoke truth, the other chose not to hear truth. I think in the Christian life, we find ourselves in both places at times. There's some of you here today, God has positioned you to speak truth. And maybe it's sometimes we're in both places at the same time. And there's, in our Christian lives, we are always in a position to receive truth, to hear truth from God. That's why we come to church. That's why we sit under his word. That's why we fellowship with one another. That's why we open up the scriptures. That's why we pray. That's why we meditate. That's why we have fellowship type, iron sharpening, iron relationships. We want to we hear God's truth. And in the Christian life, we find ourselves in both places. Maybe today in your life, God has put a person on your heart, a relationship on your heart, a situation on your heart where you know unequivocally. And I'm praying right now that God, by your Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction into the hearts of these people? Whoever they are, God, you have those you've, you've positioned to speak a truth or to have an ongoing conversation of truth with those in their midst. God, would you just give them courage, conviction, clarity right now about what it would look like for them to be obedient to that, to see that they are the one positioned to speak truth. God, I also pray that you would open up the hearts and the minds and the ears of those here today who need to hear a truth or some truths. God, raise up communicators, whether it's a preacher on a Sunday morning or it's your Holy Spirit or it's the counsel of your word or it's the, it's the counsel of a brother or sister in Christ. God, would you give us ears to hear the truth you want to speak into our lives? I'm also mindful of anyone here this morning who may be like Nebuchadnezzar and not know the Most High God. 
living according to the, the gods of this world. And so God has a, a truth to speak into your life. If you're here this morning, you are one positioned to hear truth. And I pray that you hear the truth today. I pray that you hear the truth today. I was thinking of the Apostle Paul who, when he was persecuting Christians and he was um, actively working against God, I was reading through Acts this morning. When he's humbled, he's in the road to Damascus and God knocks him off his horse, knocks him on his face and he's on his face on the road to Damascus and he's humbled and he's down in the dirt and, and God appears to him as this blinding light. I see the, the humbling way in which God met Paul. And I just pray for those of us here today who, who have never come to a place of surrendering our lives to Christ, surrendering your, your heart to Jesus, trusting in the gospel, that today would be the day that you would, you would be positioned to hear that truth. Because today is also a day that we observe the Lord's Supper. And when I think about this call to humility, there's none more humble than Christ. He was the ultimately the most perfectly humble one who has ever lived. You remember what the Apostle Paul writes about Jesus in Philippians 2? I have it on the screen behind me. Paul said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this morning, as we come forward for the Lord's Supper, we are gathering around a table. We are gathering around a table with a cup of wine and some bread that symbolizes the shed blood and the broken body of our God who humbled himself to the point of death to take on our sins upon himself, to suffer under the wrath of sin, and then to conquer death and to conquer sin and to rise again to life. We gather around the table as the family of God, praising and extolling and honoring our humble King. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper this morning, God, I pray that you would give us this time right now, these moments to, to examine ourselves. God, that we don't eat this bread and drink of this cup in an unworthy manner. God, help us to to examine ourselves as we approach the, the table. And God, we're so grateful to know that Jesus, you, God, you are the ultimate picture of humility. I mean, you had, if anyone ever had all the right to, to, to pound their chest and make prideful claims, it was you. But Jesus, you became flesh. You came into this world not riding on a, a war horse, but on a donkey. You weren't born in a palace, but you were born in a manger. You weren't lifted up on the throne, you were lifted up on a cross. And you died in our place, Jesus. You, you absorbed the wrath our sin deserves as your body was broken, as your blood was shed. God, it was a payment. It was, it was a payment in our place so that we can come to you in faith. We can confess that Jesus, you are Lord. We can believe in our hearts that God, you have raised him from the dead and will be saved and and so, God, you've given us the simple ordinance to do as the, the family of God, to gather around this table as the family of God, as a, as a statement of faith, as an act of worship. So, God, as we prepare our hearts to come forward and receive communion this morning, would you be honored? Would you be glorified in our midst? We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, When the Lord had given thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And afterwards, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, when you're ready, when you feel called, I encourage you to come down the center aisles, receive communion, return to your seat through the side aisles. Let's continue to worship through the breaking of bread and through the singing of songs.